anybody that happened to just tune in on live stream, uh, I'm sorry, but you missed the real preacher. I'd like to talk this morning about the conversion of Saul, and I'd like to read from Acts chapter 9. Now, I'm going to throw out a whole bunch of stuff this morning, so uh, catch it, if, uh, like the ring that was given out, just catch it if you feel it's something God's speaking to you. Uh, this is one of those messages where you know, even if you completely miss 90% of it, if there's something in it for you, uh, God can use it to change your life. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, as he went in his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. Falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I'm Jesus, whom you're persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you'll be told what you're to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus, and for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias, and the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said, Rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he's praying. And he's seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he may regain his sight. Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard about many, from many about this man, how much evil he's done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and the kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer. For the sake of my name. Let's stop there for a second and throw in another point. It's interesting, isn't it, how you can have a supernatural, amazing experience with God and still be called to suffer. Well, one day we can walk in an amazing miracle of God, and the next week or the next day, God calls us to suffer something on account of uh, his name. It's, you can't ever figure God out. And God does wonderful things Sometimes he does wonderful things to give us strength for a, a battle that's coming. And in the middle of the battle, he strengthens us to bring us out the other side. Amen. There was another little message thrown in. And so Ananias departed and entered the house and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes he regained his sight. He rose and was baptized. That's interesting, isn't it? He was baptized immediately. I've been doing a little Bible study lately, 
in relation to something I have to teach later in the year, and I've noticed that the normal New Testament practice was for people to be baptized as soon as they were saved. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. Now, point number one, God has an agenda, and it's greater than yours. Saul was a man on a mission, his own mission, and God arrested him in the middle of his mission in order to destroy it. Priorities independent of God will blind you to the will of God for your life. I'll say that again. Priorities independent of God will blind you to the will of God for your life. Now, those priorities uh, can be many things, but the test of your priorities always boils down to two basics, how you spend your life and how you spend your money. Sorry, how you spend your time and how you spend your money. Everything else falls under those two headings. And your priorities may not necessarily be entirely bad. They could include family or job, uh, making money, uh, playing sports, keeping yourself in shape, all sorts of different things. In themselves, they may not be bad, but if they're independent of God, they are bad. And a priority which is established in your life outside of the leading of God and the conviction of God, once it becomes established, will inevitably become an idol. And when you are professing to be a, a Christian, but actually worshiping an idol, that's a problem. And that will bring you into contention with God. Well, Saul, he had to learn the hard way. Uh, but there is a better way. The better way is, find out what God's agenda is for your life. And fit into it. Why do we fight it? We're stupid, aren't we? Why do we fight it? We fought it before. We've stubbed our toe against uh, our own stupidity. And God rescued us. And we're going to do it again. Find out what God's agenda is and just fit into it. Paul lost three days as a result of this incident, in addition to all the time previous in his life. But resisting the will of God and following your own priorities may lose you years of your life. You can spend years out of the will of God as a Christian when you don't have to. It's not necessary. How do I find out the agenda of God? Well, that's the easy part. Number one, read the Bible. A lot. Get a hold of the heart of God for your life. Number two, surround yourself with people who love God. People were coming up this morning to be surrounded by people who love God so that they could get prayed for. Surround yourself not with the wrong kind of friends, but with people who love God. 
who will love you, who will push you, who will challenge you. Be in church every Sunday. Number one, read the Bible. Number two, surround yourself with people who love God. And number three, once you've got what God's saying to you, for Pete's sake, obey it. Just do it. You know, God loves a cheerful giver, but he'll accept from a grouch. <laughs> I say it as a, as a pastor. <clears throat> but God loves obedience even when sometimes we're grumbling while we're doing it. Because what God, val I mean, God knows that we all fight, don't we? We all fight with mixed motivations. Uh, we were out at <clears throat> Brian and Malin's home the other night, and uh, at the end of uh, eating a very healthy a soup and salad, uh, somewhere Brian produced these sort of cinnamon rolls. And uh, of those members of our household that were present, one resisted and one fell into temptation. And uh, I said, well, it's, they're cut into such tiny pieces. And uh, Brian said amen as he quickly uh, took one himself and popped it into his mouth. And then about five minutes later, it just didn't seem that that one little piece was enough. And uh, when, when Elaine was looking in the other direction, talking to Malin, I quickly... <laughs> so what am I saying? Um, I was fighting a battle. And at the end of it, all I had was three small pieces, so I'm still declaring victory. <clears throat> but... Um, uh, We can't, we all struggle, don't we, with the cinnamon roll temptations in our life. Uh, but at the end of it all, and my analogy isn't perfect because I actually fell into sin and ate the three darn pieces, but I could say, well, at least I didn't eat the rest. Um, so you can struggle, you can grumble, you can growl, but at the end of the day, if you do what God wants you to do, if you obey, that's good enough for God. Because he values obedience. And obedience is not a matter of the, uh, of the emotions, of what you feel like. It's a matter of what you actually do. That's the will. That comes out of the Spirit. I'm not talking about a hypocrisy which obeys on the surface while being angry at God underneath. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the battle that each of us face where we struggle, but at the end of it all, in spite of our struggles, and in spite of me, some of the, some of the times when I've, I've done things that God called me to do, I did not feel like doing them. As anyone, to, see, somebody tell me I'm not the only one in here. I did not feel like doing them, but I did them. Sometimes I felt scared stiff doing things that God spoke to me to do. But I did them. And thank God, he accepted my obedience, even though he knew perfectly well the struggle I had behind it. So here's my appeal to you. God has an agenda for your life. It is bigger than your agenda. Ditch your agenda. Grumble along the way if you want. 
but get into line with what God's plan is for your life. And if you have trouble knowing what it is, reading the Bible will help you a whole lot. Surrounding yourself with people who love God will help you a whole lot. And then just go and do it. Point number two. There is a must in the call of God. Uh, verse 6 says, you will be told what you, what you must do. That's what, that's what Jesus said to Paul. You will be told what you must do. Paul was no longer a free agent. He wasn't able to just come and go and do what he wanted to do. With the calling of God comes the compulsion of God. And an awareness that God is not in the business of making suggestions. He's in the business of giving commandments. You no longer, when you give your life to Christ, you no longer belong to yourself. You belong to someone else. Now, don't come to me and be all super spiritual and tell me you have a calling of God in your life if there's no evidence in your life of a compulsion to follow the call. It's one thing to say, well, I feel God's calling me to do this, that, or the next thing. Well, what are you doing about it? Do I see a compulsion to do it? Do I see a laying aside of everything that hinders? Do I see a sacrificial willingness? Do I see an obedience? You know, there's always people around, and if my wife was up here, she'd probably say I was one of them. But she isn't, thankfully, at the moment. Um, but there's always people around that will tell you again and again and again, yes, I'm going to do that, but they never do it. And uh, kind of like going back to the cinnamon roll, but I don't want to go back to that. So, uh, you know, uh, but we need to be people once we know, once you know what God is telling you to do, that God has told you to do something. How many people are, I know I'm going to ask you to raise your hand and embarrass you, but how many people in here, God has spoken to you to do something, and you haven't done it? Let guilt settle all over the room. <laughs> right? There's all of us fall into that category. We need to have a compulsion to do what God wants us to do. Why? Because we are afraid of God? No, because we love God. See, people who hang around church just do their own thing. But there's a difference between people who hang around church and people who have had an encounter with God. You can hang around church. The doors are open. We love to have you here, but it's not going to do much good for you unless you have an encounter with God. And when you have an encounter with God, like Saul did, and got knocked off his horse, that's when you start doing what God's told you to do. Now remember, the first thing and the last thing Jesus said to Peter in all those years that he knew Peter, the first thing he said to Peter was exactly the same as the last thing he said to Peter, and it was two words, follow me. There is a must in the calling of God. Point number three. There are always two letters. Now Saul headed out to Damascus with a letter from man. It says in verse two, he went to the high priest and asked him for 
letters to the synagogues at Damascus. That was in order to arrest and even put to death the believers. He left Damascus with a letter from God. And the letter was, carry my name before the Gentiles and the kings and the children of Israel. Verse 15, that letter changed Paul's life. It became the story of the rest of his life. Paul headed out to Damascus representing human religion. He left Damascus representing Almighty God. There is nothing more opposed to the will of God than human religion. Outright paganism is a bad thing, but at least it knows what it's doing. Religion is worse. Religion pretends to be doing the right thing while underneath doing all the things the pagans are doing. It's the worst enemy of the kingdom of God. It's religion that put Jesus on the cross. The pagan Romans were only bystanders. If we try to build church while losing the vitality of our personal relationship with the Lord, we will fall back into human religion. And there are churches that that happens to, very sadly. And that's the end of them. Now, if all you have in your relationship with God is the following of certain rules, even rules that may do you some good, you don't have a genuine relationship with God. There are two letters in life. All of us carry either one letter or the other letter. One letter is a letter from ourselves telling God what he should do. That's what Paul had when he set out. Those kind of letters won't get you anywhere. Can you imagine presenting your letters of credential that you wrote for yourself to God on the day of judgment? You could own the world. But without Jesus, you have nothing. But to get the second letter, you have to surrender the first letter. And that can be hard. That means giving up all we think that we are, all we think we're owed, all we want in this world. But when you've given up the first letter, you get that second letter. And that makes you an ambassador of the king. Because the letter comes from God and gives you credentials to be his ambassador and representative every single place you go. You carry a measure of his delegated authority on earth. That's an amazing thing, isn't it? When you go into your place of employment, wherever it is, uh, tomorrow morning, you carry a letter. If you are a Christian who loves God, you carry a letter of authority with you. It gives you authority to be God's representative in that place of employment. But nobody sees the letter. It's an invisible letter, but you're carrying it. If you go to school or college, you carry that letter into your school or college. If you uh, are having coffee with your neighbor or talking with somebody at the checkout at the supermarket, you carry that letter of authority. You never lose that letter of authority. You have authority wherever you go. Every piece of ground on which the sole of your tre foot treads is given to you. You have authority to be the representative of Jesus Christ in that moment, in that place. 
Don't let the enemy lie to you that that's not the case. Does that mean you're supposed to witness to everyone everywhere you go? No, it doesn't. It just means you have authority to if God leads you to by His Spirit. That letter makes you something. So you have to give up your own letter. The letter you wrote about your own life. The letter you want and what you think God should do for you and so on. But let me tell you, the exchange that's worth it is giving up what you can't keep to gain what you can't lose. Number four, I warned you, I'm rolling out these points here this morning. Number four, just try to grab a hold of at least one. Number four, the power of the divine encounter. We all, at least most of us, I think, long for an encounter with God, uh, or many encounters with God, but we, we should be careful what we wish for. Saul, his heart obviously was not right with God, but as a result of his encounter with Jesus, he became blind. He saw nothing, verse 8. Remember, Zechariah in the temple, when his unbelief encountered the presence of the angel of God, he became mute. And uh, what happens when we encounter God when our hearts are not right? I mean, think about Ananias and Sapphira. None of us wants to be in their position. And we've seen from time to time in our experience what happens to people who want an experience of God, but they're still carrying their own letter. They're, they're telling God, I'll serve you, but on this basis, I, I want an experience of you. I want this and I want that, but, but I'm not willing to do the fact is they are not willing to do what he tells them to do. And people who have encounters with the supernatural presence of God are, and are not right with him in that way, it does not go well with them. They wind up further away from God in the experience of our lives, what we've seen, than they were in the first place. So don't harden your heart. You can't treat God like that. But here, look at the mercy of God. In the case of Saul, and Saul was a very bad man, even the punishment of God led to restoration. His discipline was a warning light on the dashboard. God will light up your dashboard if he has to, in order to get your attention. Because he wants to destroy you? No. Because he wants to rescue you out of your stupidity before you do something that is going to harm you and your family. So, if you respond rightly, you'll be restored. And Saul was. Now notice, now notice how he responded. He, he's come totally convinced that he's got to destroy and eradicate Christianity. I mean, he's, he is the most hardened opponent uh, of the gospel that you could imagine. And he gets knocked off his horse by this encounter. He's blinded. He has a revelation of someone. He doesn't know who it is, but he hears this voice saying it's Jesus. And so, uh, what we know is that when he got to that house on Straight Street, it says that he fasted and prayed. 
ate or drank nothing. So that was his response. He was coming from a bad place, but he knew he'd met God. And when God knocked him off that horse, he got the message. He, he didn't get the whole message. That had to wait till Ananias came. But he, he repented. He responded rightly. When God encounters you, the book of Revelation says, when God encounters people whose hearts are not right, that they can become even more hardened against God. And so when God encounters us in a moment of discipline, in a moment of correction, then it's very important how you respond in that moment. And Saul responded rightly. So I, I think we're praying, you know, we all pray and hope for revival, but be careful, like I said, what you wish for, because with revival comes the power of the supernatural presence of God. And that power is not a play toy for us all to be knocked out on the floor at the front of church on Sunday morning. It is the power of God to cleanse and purify and refine us and discipline us and strengthen us and all those things in order to, to uh, establish His complete ownership over our lives. I was conscious that this September September, October is the 40th anniversary of the first church I started. I can't believe it. I was five years old when I started that church. And uh, it seems like yesterday in many ways. Um, but I can remember this uh, sense that all these young people, well, not, there weren't all that many of them. It was a, a dozen or two young people who were making, at that moment, decisions uh, to commit to planning this church, which I knew would change the course of their whole life. They, they were turning down really good job offers in, in places that, naturally speaking, they would have gone to, to stay without a job and just commit themselves. And by the grace of God, not only did he give jobs, but in due course, he gave children, and some of those children are now serving the Lord, and grandchildren, and it's an amazing thing. But those people's lives, and there's a multitude of them now, who some of whom stayed, many of whom went out to plant other churches, they were scattered across, but those people's lives were forever changed by an encounter with God, by what God was doing amongst his people at that moment, if, if we have uh, a revival, a move of God, whatever you want to call it, let me warn you, it will change your life. It will alter the course of your life. And if you're ready for that, then that's good. But don't think the Holy Spirit is just here to knock you out on the floor, not that I'm have anything against that, but to knock you out on the floor on a Sunday morning and make you feel better. That's not what the Holy Spirit is here for. He's here to take your life and to change it. The power of a divine encounter. Now, here's number five. I, I, I never looked at the clock when I began, so I'm just hoping for the best. Uh, number five, there are always other pieces of the puzzle than you can see. And when I express this to people, they sometimes actually find it helpful. So you may find it helpful this morning. 
Now, let me explain what I mean by this. <clears throat> that God was dealing with Saul, and at the same time, he was preparing an answer by speaking to Ananias. Now, this is obviously not the Ananias of the Ananias and Sapphira, because he was already dead. But this is the good Ananias, so to speak. And so, what Saul here is fasting and praying for three days. He's, he's got no healing, right? That's a serious thing. He's blind. That's a very frightening thing. He's blind. Uh, he's responding to God, but he's not experiencing an answer to God. And so, in his predicament, if you can put yourself in his predicament, things were dire. I mean, he didn't know what was happening to him or what was going to happen. But, meanwhile, while that was happening, over in another part of the same city, Jesus was appearing to this faithful man called Ananias. And here's my application. God cannot fulfill his plan for you until he brings other things into place. The universe, believe it or not, is not centered around your impatience. It's centered around the plan of God. Submit to the plan, like Paul. Don't fight it. The fact that nothing is changing in your circumstance does not mean that nothing is happening. This is my point. It's like a jigsaw puzzle. God has other pieces to bring. I, I felt God promised me a wife in 1973. Nothing happened. I mean, you think with an amazing, you know, good-looking man like myself, uh, that they would be flocking, but they weren't. And so time went past, and time went past, and, you know, I just kind of, my sense of self-worth got lower and lower. <laughs> You, knew, you know that people are talking about you behind your back, you know? <laughs> and finally, God spoke to me. Within three months, you'll meet the woman whom you're going to marry. And at that moment, we had an evangelist in our church who had one of the most extraordinary word of knowledge ministries I've ever witnessed in my life. And I screwed up all my courage, and I told him. And he closed his eyes. And he said, yes, and I'm in faith for all your children to be converted, which has carried us to this day. Of course, he didn't know how many we'd have. <laughs> uh, and, but here's the amazing thing, that back in 1973, when I'm asking God for a wife, God saved a young 13-year-old on the other side of the world, whose name was Elaine Hunter. Do you understand what I'm saying? The fact that nothing is happening in your circumstance doesn't mean that nothing is happening. It may be happening 4,000 miles away. It may be happening like with Paul and Ananias, Saul and Ananias on the other side of town. God's bringing the pieces of the puzzle together. How many have ever, you know, been in real estate and bought a house or tried to buy a house and that house, it was just perfect and you lost it and it didn't happen. And then, 
three, four, or six months later, another house comes along, and you buy it, and you look back and say, well, Lord, thank you, I never got that first house, this one's so much better. See, God, the fact that nothing is happening didn't mean, the fact that nothing is changing in your circumstance doesn't mean nothing is happening. God had another house down the road for you. See, God has a plan. He does, actually. It's just that the universe is not centered around your impatience and your need to have it happen about two minutes from now. So just be patient because God's putting circumstances together and you're not the only person on the face of planet Earth that most of the answers to prayer involve God doing something in somebody else's life, not just yours. And it takes time even for God to fashion all those things together. So, uh, there are always other pieces of the puzzle that God is putting together that you can't see. The action has to happen elsewhere so it can happen for you. God is at work all the time preparing things. Only God sees the completed picture in time you all look back and see it too. Is that helpful for you practically? Okay, well, that was one point anyway of, if you want to stay for the rest of the points, you can. Otherwise, <laughs> go over to McDonald's and have a hamburger. No. Okay. Number six. Would you recognize God if you met him? That seems a silly question, doesn't it? But look at the difference between Saul and Ananias. Because Jesus appeared to both of them. Now, in verse 5, Saul said, Who are you, Lord? But in verse 10, Ananias said, Here I am, Lord. That's two different responses, isn't it? Paul, obviously, uh, this incredible presence appeared before him with blinding light. He knew this was something to do with God, but he didn't know who he was talking to. But Ananias did. He knew it was the Lord. The difference was that one man had prepared his heart to meet God, and the other man was still fighting him. Now, here's my point. If you're not constantly preparing your heart to meet with God, you may not even recognize it when he speaks to you. Ooh, is that possible? Probably, if you had an angelic presence or divine presence appear to you in white uh, and blinding light and all the rest of it, you might get the hint that this was God. But how many of you would agree with me that there are times when God has spoken to you that you just didn't get it? And then you look back. Or in the case of the men, your wife told you that was God. When are you going to hear what God is saying to you? I'm not the only husband in this room that has been addressed in that manner. And justifiably so. So, people complain often they aren't hearing God. The truth is, they don't know God well enough to know when he's speaking to them. How do you get to know God? Well, go back to the first point. Read the Bible. A lot. A lot. Surround yourself with people who love God. Start talking to God. 
and you may recognize his voice a little bit more clearly. God speaks so many ways in life. God speaks through circumstances that happen to you. Sometimes I look at people and I think, why don't they get what God's saying to them? Through the circumstances that are happening, God speaks. God speaks to us through people. God speaks through the Bible. God speaks through prophetic words. God speaks all sorts of ways. The question isn't that God is, is God speaking or not. The question is, are we hearing or not? That's the question. When God spoke to the seven churches of the book of Revelation, the message to every single one of them was the same. Let him who has an ear hear. The implication is you can have an ear, but not hear God. So let him who has an ear hear. If you don't hear, your ear will get deaf because you've rejected what God's saying. It'll be harder to hear the next time. So if God's speaking, listen, we are meant and designed and created to know and recognize the voice of God. But to do that means doing your homework. And doing your homework is described very well by the prophet Hosea. He says this, Sow for yourselves righteousness. Break up your fallow ground. For it's time to seek the Lord, that he may come and rain righteousness on you. There's someone here this morning that needs to hear that word, break up your fallow ground. Break it up. Start breaking it up. Because if you don't, the rain will come, flash flood over it, and flow into somebody else's field. But if you break up your fallow ground, you'll hear God and he'll begin to move. Point number seven. God knows our address. And that should be an encouragement. See, Jesus told Ananias exactly where Saul was. He was on Straight Street. Now, believe it or not, Straight Street still exists. You can go to Damascus today, 2,000 years later, and find Straight Street. Unfortunately, we don't know what number Saul was living at. Uh, but you can find the street. But there's a play on words here. Because in the Greek language, the word straight means, and I'm not going to draw out implications, but the word straight means ethically upright. So, Simon the magician, in Acts chapter 8, his heart is described as being not straight before God. Or Elimus the magician, who opposed Paul, uh, is, is described as trying to make crooked the straight paths of God. Now, here's what I find encouraging. I hope I'm not reading this into the Bible, but if I am, it's, <laughs> it was a good point anyway. No, <laughs> don't hear me saying that. <laughs> um, but what I find encouraging is this. Now, think about it, where Paul is coming from and all the rest of it. He's knocked off his horse. He's into Damascus. He's on straight street, and straight means right with God, right? So, Jesus then heads over to the other side of town because he's putting the pieces of the jigsaw puzzle into place, right? Jesus heads over to the other side of town and appears to Ananias and gives Ananias Saul's address. Jesus knew where Saul was living. And Jesus, from Jesus' perspective, he looked at Saul already as living on straight street. Jesus looked at Saul as being right with him. And uh, even though Saul hadn't come through to his complete, 
conversion experience and baptism and whatever yet, Jesus already saw him as there. Even when you are par, far, even when we are far from perfect and far from God, maybe we have a, a times in our life where where things aren't what they should be, God sees you different. God sees you on straight street. If you're saved, you're a Christian, that's how God looks at you. It doesn't mean uh, that there, there aren't things to adjust in your life, but the reason He comes to you in discipline is because He sees you on straight street. The reason that God comes to you, and if He has to, knocks you off a horse or two, is not because He hates you, it's because He loves you. It's because he sees the potential in your life. It's because he's grieved that you're not living up to it. And he calls you out of that. That's the heart of God and needs to be the heart that we have for one another. So I have good news for you today. This message is going to end in a few minutes. No, I have good news. That's true. But I have more good news for you. In this instant, God has changed your place of residence. You're living today on Straight Street, and that's a great place to live. And if you let him, he will help you in the practicality of your day-to-day life, so that's reflected more and more in how you live and what you do. Point number eight, we are getting, there's only 10, so we're, we're getting there at 1143. There's hope. Before the Lord returns, this message will end. Uh, of course, neither the sun, you know... No, it's not the day or the hour, but only the Father. But anyway, uh, we'll get there before the Lord returns. Number eight, meeting Jesus always changes your heart. <clears throat> In this encounter, <clears throat> now here's, here's a point, please hear me. It wasn't just Saul's heart that was changed. Somebody else's heart was changed that day. A man called Ananias. Because he met with Jesus, I mean, think about it for a minute. Saul was the man who'd come to Damascus to carry Ananias, his wife, and his children off to prison and put them to death if possible. That's how Ananias looked at Saul. But because he met Jesus and he went to Straight Street, because with the calling comes a compulsion, he probably didn't want to go. But because God called him, he got off of his, you know, backside watching college football over in the other side of town, got in his car and drove right over to Paul's place, and uh, he did it. And when he got in the door, he addressed Saul with one very significant word, and that word was this, brother. The brother was the term reserved for fellow believers, for those whom we love in the Lord Jesus. God had changed Ananias' heart in that encounter. There's only one way I know to overcome prejudice, bitterness, hostility. Even within the body of Christ, somebody's hurt you. Here's a word of knowledge. In this room today, there's someone who's been hurt by someone else. That's bound to, that's a buckshot word of knowledge. It hit somebody. <laughs> it was an easy, easy one, right? We've all been hurt. Uh, we all carry a sort of a layer of bitterness. 
Sometimes it take, goes on for years and gets worse and worse. Uh, we, we have prejudice against people for various reasons. Um, we have hostility. We don't like, you know, their aftershave or something. I don't know. But um, uh, there's only one way I know to overcome prejudice and bitterness in the body of Christ, and that's by meeting Jesus. When you meet Jesus, you can encounter your biggest opponent, the man that messed you up in a business deal, or somebody that you don't like, or somebody of another race or color, and the whole thing dissolves into one word, brother. Only Jesus. I don't know anyone else that can do that. Muhammad can't do it. He's dead. Buddha can't do it. He, he's fat and dead. <laughs> Forgive me if you're a Buddhist. Because actually Buddha was very thin. I don't understand why the statues are all fat. Uh, Confucius can't do it. He's dead. Jesus is... There's 400 million gods in India, and they're all dead. But there is one God who's alive. And he's able to change your life, and in a moment, change your heart. Forgive me, I didn't mean to mean to make a comment about Buddhists. Uh, meeting Jesus changes your heart. Don will tell you he went into enough of those temples. I don't think anyone's heart was changed by praying to a statue. But when you meet the living God and his son Jesus Christ, that's a different thing entirely. So point number nine, God can use anyone and he will. This was an incredibly significant occasion. It was not only the conversion of Saul, it was the first time the Holy Spirit had fallen outside the boundaries of the nation of Israel. It was a historic moment. You know, it's like this virus in China, and we uh, are concerned because it's now appeared here or there. Well, the Holy Spirit is more powerful, thank God, than any virus. And this was the first, and you can't contain the Holy Spirit. Viruses will die out, or some will invent a vaccine or a cure, and they'll be dealt with. But you cannot stop the Holy Spirit. You know? Uh, I mean, the medieval church, corrupt though it was, could not stop the Holy Spirit. No, communism could not stop the Holy Spirit. Dictatorship cannot stop the Holy Spirit. Uh, Islam cannot stop the Holy Spirit. Nothing can stop the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit spreads like wildfire. And this was the first time that the Holy Spirit had fallen outside the boundaries of Israel. And think what an impact. In that moment, God touched a man who, within 16 years of his earthly ministry, took the gospel to almost every part of the Roman Empire in Europe. It's incredible, wasn't it? Without a private jet, probably not even a private horse, when Ananias laid hands on Saul, Saul was filled with the Holy Spirit, verse 17. At the beginning, Peter was the only one God used. Then he started using the other apostles. And after that, he just started using anyone. Philip. Who's Philip anyway? He was a nobody. But it was Philip that took the gospel to Samaria. And here in Damascus, it was Ananias. Now, Ananias 
is a nobody we never hear about before and we never hear about afterward, but God used that man to change the course of history. God can use anyone, and he will. And I'll tell you something else, that I don't believe that Ananias lived long enough or under, in terms of the channels of communication and all the rest of it, to understand the implications of how God used him until he got into the presence of God. And then he saw that we don't know who he was, just a guy like any of you guys. Or it could have been his wife. God could have used his wife like any of you ladies. And through that man, the course of history was changed. Like the story of the shoe salesman in Chicago, I, taught, I can't, can't uh, go over that one again. But God uses nobodies to change the course of history. It was Ananias that did it. And the more God moves, the more people he uses. So, if you're here today or listening in live stream and you're a nobody, but your heart is prepared, you're a prime candidate to be used by God in an amazing way. And here is the last point. I'll never do this to you again. <clears throat> or God will knock me off my horse. Uh, we are his body. That's my last point. The story starts with Jesus telling Saul that when you persecute my people, you persecute me. There's no distinction. You and I are part of the body of Christ and God's desire is to use you to do his will on the earth. Think about it. Jesus could have encountered Saul again and healed him in the way that he appeared to him and blinded him, but he did not do so. I'll say that again. Jesus could have encountered Saul a second time and healed him in the same way he appeared the first time and blinded him, but he did not do so. What did he do? He chose a man to represent him, a man who had a letter from God who was his ambassador. When Saul met Ananias, he met Jesus again just as surely as he did on the road. Do you understand what I'm saying? When Saul met Ananias coming through his door on Straight Street, he met Jesus again. Am I saying that Ananias was Jesus? No, I'm not saying that. I'm saying that we are his body, that we are in Christ, and that when you meet a believer, you meet Christ, and the Spirit of Christ is dwelling within that person. We are Jesus' body on earth. Now, uh, when Elaine and I were in Greece, we found out the stories are true that Jesus is appearing to people, especially of Muslim faith, in most extraordinary dreams and visions and drawing them to Christ. We're receiving uh, news every single week. I could take you onto my phone and tell you some of the visions that people are... And if, and if they don't, if, if Jesus appears to them the first time and they're not quite sure because of their Muslim background, he'll appear to them again a second time. It's incredible. And they're coming to faith. So Jesus is still doing this, as he did to Saul that day. But, for the most part, he uses us. He only appears to people like that because no Christians can get into some of those places. But here, we are his body 
in this place. And Jesus appears every day to all sorts of people. Jesus appears every day to thousands of people through the hundreds of people in this congregation. Think about it. And he uses us to extend his kingdom on earth. You know, I always thought that this story was about Saul until I started studying it and realized that it's almost as much about Ananias. I have no doubt that God is still looking for the souls of this world to confront them and save them and use them, but he's also looking for the Ananiases, the people who use to reach the souls. And in church, we're looking for Ananiases this morning. We're not looking for souls. The souls are still out in the world, but it takes the Ananiases to reach them. So I close with this question. Are there any Ananiases here today? I hope so, because that's who Jesus is looking for, just as he was then. Like I said, Ananias probably never lived to appreciate on earth how significantly God used him that day. And the same is true for much of what we do. God has used you, many of you, to do things that will resonate in eternity, and you don't even know it. And you won't know it until you get there. And it doesn't matter. But just know this, that it's real and it's true because your labor in the Lord is never in vain. What Ananias did is, was a hard thing. It probably wasn't the ministry he was looking for. And what Paul wound up doing was a hard thing. And it certainly wasn't the ministry he was looking for. But because the hearts of both those men were prepared, both those men were used, and if your heart is prepared, he will use you too, even if you don't find out until eternity just how much. Let's stand together. Lord, we offer ourselves to you this morning. We thank you so much for the encouragement that you use, nobodies and imperfect people. We thank you that you encounter us, that you draw us back to yourself. We thank you that you call us. We thank you that you compel us into obedience. We thank you, Lord, that there's a harvest to our life that we don't even realize a fraction of. And I thank you, Lord, that mercifully you still encounter imperfect people like me every day. And I pray that you'd encourage my brothers and sisters here this morning, the Ananiases and the Ananiettes, if there is such a word, that they would come forward and offer themselves. I don't mean come forward to the front here. I mean just come forward in life and step out and offer themselves. And say, here I am, Lord. I guess if Ananias was probably a leader in the church or rich or wealthy or powerful, it would probably have been written in the Bible, but nothing's written, so he probably was just an ordinary guy whose only qualification was he could hear your voice, but that's all he needed. For him to put that key into the door and open it. 
resulted in the salvation of untold numbers of people. And the foundation of the whole early New Testament church. Lord, this is incredible. And when your Holy Spirit gets out of the container, there's no national boundaries that can contain or stop him. And Lord, we don't want the boundary of our heart to stop your spirit either. So we open ourselves this morning. Say, please use us. I just like to ask Joe to just lead us in whatever, something of a song where we just have a moment or a couple of moments to respond. And I invite you to do that in your own heart. And when we finish singing, and we'll close.